Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When people are considering the issues of life and they're considering the issues concerning faith and Christianity and the Lord Jesus, righteousness, holiness, when people consider these things, one thing that always seems to come up is the subject of sin. We talk about sin. We ask each other, how are you doing with your sin and things like that. People are really concerned about the issue of sin in many cases, in many religious circles. And I can understand that. I can appreciate the seriousness of it and the significance of it. I don't want to depreciate that in any way at all. But when we consider this subject of sin, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we can be so distracted by what people are doing or what they are not doing, that we forget that there are reasons why people sin. And of course, I'm not saying that to try to give some justification of some kind for sin, to say that it's okay or to give an excuse or to maybe find some way to shift blame to someone else or to something else. The reason why I say that is because people do not often deal with the root issues in life. They don't normally deal with or consider the causes of effects. Instead, they're so preoccupied with the effects. They're so preoccupied with the circumstances or the situations or the behaviors that people have that people do not want to consider seriously why things happen the way they do. Why do people make the decisions that they do? And in saying that, I can also understand why people don't bother Asking those kinds of questions, and I believe that the easiest answer to that is that people don't ask these kinds of questions because they don't know why. Perhaps you've encountered that at one point in your life where you've asked somebody the question, why did you do that? Or maybe you've asked yourself the question, why did I do that? And you don't have an answer, and they don't have an answer. Maybe this is why people don't bother asking why, because nobody knows why. But I believe that there is a why. I really do. Even if people don't know what that is, that doesn't mean that it does not exist. There are no accidents, as far as I'm concerned, in the universe that God made. There is a reason why everything happens. I'm not saying that everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that. But I do believe that there is a reason why everything happens. If you find yourself in a situation where you are injured, for example... We may call that an accident, and I understand that this is something that you probably did not want to see happen, and perhaps somebody else did not want this to happen, that it was not an intentional act of violence or whatever it was that caused injury, but there are reasons why it happened. The outcome may not have been intentional, but the activity and the behavior that leads to unintended consequences is still deliberate. That's what I'm referring to, is that we are always making decisions deliberately, even though we may not fully understand the consequences or want the consequences, but that doesn't matter. There is always a reason why, and when it comes to sin, there is always a reason why.
Now, I have spoken about this subject in many of the programs that I have recorded. And so if you spend a reasonable amount of time going through the materials that I've already produced, you will discover that I have a lot of content on this. I do believe that it's important to to talk about it, to understand it, and to realize that there are reasons why we sin. But, of course, the reasons why we sin have to do with the emptiness that is within us. It has to do with the emptiness. That's what I always talk about is the emptiness that we have, that we are empty, that we have needs, and that these needs can never be met in the world. We were created by our God to have these needs, and he created us in such a way that only he can meet these needs. He's not going to allow anyone else around you to meet the deepest needs of your heart, and he created nothing in this world that would fulfill you on the inside. So this was a deliberate act by God that he made a decision to make you in such a way that you would be empty without him. Now, the way that we live our lives with this emptiness, with these needs that are unmet, the way that we live our lives, the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, and the way that we interact with the world that we are a part of, leads to sin. When we live in our emptiness, when we live in our unbelief, when we engage the world with hope that something or someone in the world will somehow deal with the issues that we have within us, that we will find fulfillment in some way, that our needs will be met in some way. When we do that, of course, sin is the expressed manifestation of our unbelief, of our emptiness, and we engage in sin. That's what happens. It's not complicated. It's very simple. And that is that sin is nothing more than the expressed manifestation of the emptiness within us. And the emptiness exists within us because we do not believe our God. We do not know him. And even though we may be a mature believer, we are still growing in that maturity. We are still living a life discovering more about our God that He began a work and he will complete it. But between the time that he started the work and the work comes to an end, you should expect to see some indications somewhere, somehow. There must be something that shows that things are not complete, that there is still sin. There's got to be some sin somewhere. And I don't say that to try to justify it or to give people an opportunity to condemn someone else. We have got to acknowledge that this is just simply the way things are and be okay with it because God is okay with it. Okay with it in the sense that he is willing to allow this existence so that he can do something that he probably could not have done in any other way. And I understand that this might not be the way that we want him to do it, but this is the way that he decided to do it. And I will trust my God that he knows what he's doing, and I will not question his decision on this matter. So when it comes to sin, sin is the expression of our emptiness. Now, at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul spoke about sin. For example, in verse 20, he said, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Does this mean that he's shifting blame? Does this mean that he's giving an excuse of some kind and saying that, Oh, it's not me. No, I, I'm not the one who did that. That that was sin. That was sin. It wasn't me. 
we need to blame sin and put blame where it belongs. No, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't say that. You keep reading, and you discover in verse 24, for example, that he says, wretched man that I am. Of course he takes personal responsibility for his sin. But if you understand that sin is the manifestation of our emptiness, it shows that there is something that is not there in this case. Then I think you can understand and appreciate what he is saying in verse 20 when he says, it is not I. What he means, in my opinion, I I really believe that what he means is that he is saying, it is not I, it is the part of I that is empty. It is the part of who I am that the Lord has not found a way to make alive, that he has not intervened in this part of my life yet to fulfill the emptiness that is within me. I believe he's talking about the absence of something. He's saying that it is sin within me, but I believe the better context is to say that it is an emptiness that is within me. And in that way, he can say it is not I, it is a part of I that does not exist because there's nothing there, and that's the problem. The problem is the emptiness. That's the problem. The problem is that there is a part of him that apparently has not been resurrected in the way that he wants it to be, in the way that he would hope that it would be, that the Lord has not completed the work, and the part of him that the Lord has not completed is still dead in an abstract sense. Don't try to find some biological or chemical explanation for this. This is an abstract description of the struggle that we will continue to live in recognizing that he has not finished the work that he began. I talked about this in the previous program, but I wanted to mention it again in this program just to describe it in the context of the emptiness. Now, of course, the way that our God is able to accomplish this, the way that he's able to continue to work with us and the way that he is able to relate to us and grow us and mature us, the reason why he can do this in the midst of our sin in the midst of the part within us that is empty, that is desperate, that is hungry and thirsty, that is continually struggling with the issues of the world, the issues of sin, because we are not fully depending on our God, not in every aspect of our very existence and being. And so because of that, there, of course, is only one solution, and that is that he has to forgive all sins. He has to forgive all sin, every sin, the entire sin of the world must be dealt with and put aside so that he can address it in a different way, in the way that he wants to, in his time, in the way that he chooses to, while he is doing that. So because of the justice of God and the holiness of God, he has found a way to resolve this matter. And the way that he did it was through forgiveness. And so because he forgave all sins... He is not condemning us on the basis of our sins anymore. This does not mean that God all of the sudden decided to deny reality and say that it doesn't exist. No, he lives in reality and he says and he knows that it does exist, but he is not going to condemn it because he has forgiven it. And he forgave it so that he could do a work within us because there was no way that he could do a work within us without forgiveness, because there's no way that he can draw us to himself. There's no way that we can be loved or accepted by our God, which is what we truly need. That's the problem. It's very similar to the chicken and the egg scenario. Which one is going to come first? 
Are you going to become holy and righteous and sinless so that he will accept you, so that he will love you? Or are you going to experience a change of heart because of his love and acceptance, which will give you what you need to occasionally, in some way, say no to sin? Which is going to come first? Because somebody's got to initiate a solution to this problem, and I believe that that's what God did. He initiated a solution to this problem, and he did it by forgiving the sins of the world so that there is now no condemnation. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that's what he starts with. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 2, it says here, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In the previous program, I spoke about chapter 7, verse 25, where he says the law of God and the law of sin, that he serves the law of God with his mind, but the law of sin with his flesh. And I explained that the law of sin is quite likely the law that defines sin, and that was given to us through Moses. And this law defines sin and defines penalties for the sins. The Old Covenant does that, and the New Covenant is initiated because of forgiveness and that there is a new life that is lived according to the new covenant. And I explained that both can exist simultaneously because they deal with two completely different issues. The law of sin and death deals with the issues related to the flesh, and the law of God deals with the issues of the heart, with the spirit. Now, when I say that they are complements of one another or that they can coexist with one another, I am not saying I do not believe that the law of sin and death has a place in the believer's life in terms of how they may grow, how they may mature, how they relate to their God or how their God relates to them. I don't believe that. I do believe that we have been set free from the law of sin and death through the law of God, which I believe he further explains by describing it as the law of the spirit of life. In verse 2, he says that we have been set free from one so that we can walk in the other. Now, if you have not been resurrected, you have not been set free from that. If you have not been saved, you have not been set free. You are still under the law of sin, the law of sin and death, the old covenant. You are still bound by that. And if you would like God to evaluate you in any way to determine whether you should have a place in his kingdom or not, I'm confident that he will accommodate that and he will present this law as the way that he's going to make that determination. But I don't believe that you are going to be happy with the outcome. I don't, because there is no outcome but death. There will be no advantage for you concerning this at all. You are either going to be set free from the law of the spirit of life or you are not going to be set free. You are going to stay in bondage You are going to remain in your condition, and I don't think you're going to be very excited about the end result of that. So, what is the law of the spirit of life? What is that? It says here in verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of the spirit of life? Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why would we have to ask that kind of a question? What does that mean? Well, I think it's a big deal. I really do. I think it's a very important question to ask because he says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, let me ask you something. If you do not know what the law of the spirit of life is, if you don't know what that is, 
then how can you say with confidence that you have been set free from the law of sin and death? How can you say that? How can you really say, how can you believe that you have been set free from the law of sin and death if you do not know the law that sets you free? Now, this is an important question, but how do we answer this kind of a question? I mean, if you go throughout the entire Bible, if you go through all the scriptures and you search for the law of the spirit of life, what are you going to find? You're not going to find anything. There is no place in the scriptures anywhere that says this is the law of the spirit of life. This is the law and this is the penalty for violating that law. If you recognize, observe, and are obedient to this law, then you will be set free from the law of sin and death. You you can't find that. It's not there. I've looked. That's why I know. It is not there. And so how, how can we answer this question? How can we determine what the law of the spirit of life is so that we can be confident in believing that we truly have been set free from the law of sin and death? Well, the way that I approach this is by first starting out with the law of sin and death. I start with that, and then I go to the law of the spirit of life. Because the law of sin and death, I know. I know really well. I know the law of sin and death. No question about that in my mind. What is the law of sin and death? The law of sin and death is, if you sin, you die. That's it. If you sin, you die. Now, the law of sin and death that was expressed to Adam was that in the day that he sinned, he would die. And we know that that was a spiritual death. There was a physical death that he experienced later. We understand that. In the law that was expressed through Moses, if you violate any of those laws, you might be taken to the city limits and people will throw rocks at you until you are dead. That is definitely a physical death that is described there. So it can be spiritual death. It can be physical death. It is a general statement to say that when there is sin, there are going to be some very serious consequences without question. And those consequences are consequences that God himself has defined. He defined these consequences. Now, if you understand the law of sin and death in this way, then you know You can understand, you see that there's only one way, one possible way that you can be free, free from the consequences of the laws related to sin and death. The only way is to forgive sin. That is the only way to deal with sin. It must be forgiven. There is no sacrifice, there is no offering, there is no penance, there is no compensation whatsoever that can resolve the matter of sin. There is nothing but the forgiveness of God. Now, when it comes to death, whether it's spiritual or physical, the only way that death can be resolved is by restoring life. If there is death and you want a solution to that, you've got to put life into the situation. When it comes to physical death, if somebody dies physically, you've got to physically resurrect them somehow. If somebody dies spiritually, you have to spiritually resurrect them. And, of course, the living God is the only one who can restore the spirit that resurrects somebody, spiritually speaking. He's the only one who can possibly do that. So please understand that if there is the law of sin and death, and we understand that, 
then the solution has to include forgiveness and the restoration of life. And I believe that is the law of the spirit of life. The law of the spirit of life is that God has forgiven the sins of the entire world. He has done that so he can offer to the world the free gift of the Holy Spirit to restore life. Now, in the context of the law, in the context of any law, you have to understand that you have a choice and that you are a participant when it comes to this law. The law is given and you have to obey this law or there will be consequences because just like the law of sin and death was given by our God and there were consequences that people would experience through that, so also if he's presenting a law of God, the law of the spirit of life, then there will be consequences, otherwise there is no law. What are the consequences if an individual refuses, refuses the free gift of the Holy Spirit? That's right. If a person does not receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit, that is because they have made a decision to refuse the free gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you accept the free gift of the Holy Spirit? You accept and you receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit by believing God. You believe him. He said, this is what I have for you. Will you take it? You say, yes, I'll take it. That is belief. That is responding to the truth that has been revealed to you. You believe him and you receive what he is offering. If you do not receive the free gift, that is because you don't believe God. You have rejected him. You have rejected what he has revealed. The consequence that you will experience for your willful rejection of the gospel, because that's what this is, the gospel, the good news, your willful rejection of the free gift that God is offering to you will result in a consequence. And what is that consequence? It is the consequence, first of all, of remaining in your condition. But there will be another consequence, and that is fast approaching. It is approaching very soon when this consequence will be the result. You will stand before your God in such a way that there will be no question that you are before your Creator. And there will be a judgment. There will be. There will be a judgment. And the judgment will be simple. Are you dead or are you alive? And if you're not alive, it's only because you decided not to be made alive. And he will make a decision. And his decision will be that you have no place among the living in his kingdom. That is what he said. He said that. That's his judgment. That's his decision. I'm only sharing with you what I believe he has said and what he thinks about this situation. That's the law and the punishment for disobedience, which is your unbelief. The punishment for disobedience will be manifested. It will be seen. It will be shown. It will be executed. Make no mistake about this. That is why I believe he has described this as a law. And it should be described as a law because there is a consequence for disobedience. In this case, the disobedience is the rejection of the free gift. It is unbelief. It is a rejection of the truth that he has revealed. 
So how does this law, the law of the spirit of life, set someone free from the law of sin and death, especially when the law of sin and death is still active, it's still functional, it's something that we use and that we apply, and in the context of disobeying the law of the spirit of life, it certainly is further justified. How can we make the connection, how can we make the relationship between the two understood and established in such a way that they can both coexist simultaneously? Well, to me, a simple way to describe this would be to talk about the differences between the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. I understand that this is not exactly the same. I'm just saying that this is similar. It's similar because if you understand the law of gravity, then you'll understand what will happen if you get up on a table or a chair or something like that, and then you step off of it. If you step off of a table or a chair when you're standing on top of it, you will experience the law of gravity. You will experience that. And so if you have any question about this, all you have to do is just get up on a table, step off the end of the table, and you will experience and understand the law of gravity. But there is another law, the law of aerodynamics. And you can experience this if you were to get into an airplane. If you got into an airplane and the airplane took off, off of the ground, and you were flying in the air, then you would not have the privilege of experiencing the law of gravity to the point that you would fall to the ground. Now, I understand that the plane is going to land at some point. That's not what I mean. What I mean is is that while you are in the airplane, the law of aerodynamics, the law of aerodynamics allows you to be free from the law of gravity in, in some way, in a certain way, so that you can fly in the air. Well, to me, this is very similar to how the law of the spirit of life relates to the law of sin and death. That when you are subject to the law of the spirit of life, you are set free from the law of sin and death because it supersedes that law. And of course, according to the law of the spirit of life, according to the gospel, once you have been saved, you can never be dead again because there is no sin that will cause the Holy Spirit to depart from within you. So this is how I look at the law of the spirit of life. And I will continue into Romans chapter 8 in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you, man.